Hello and welcome to the first official episode of Heavy Decibel Operations, a podcast created in the beginning stages of quarantined life. My name is Keith O'Brien. The podcast will tackle culture, politics, news, sports, whatever the guests that I bring on find interesting. Uh, Today, We'll hear two separate segments with four guests, all of whom I hope will be recurring. The first segment, Jeff Klingman and Randall Monty talking about live music and art in the quarantine days. And then the second segment, Sebastian Hernandez and Yona Korngold talking about recent political trends. And for our first segment, uh, we have Jeff Klingman, who is currently in Virginia, and Randall Monty, Randy Monty in Texas. Where exactly are you guys both? Uh, I am currently in Lexington, Virginia. And I live in uh, the Rio Grande Valley. Uh, Randy, what's the view from your window? What has been your experience the past couple of days? Okay, so the past couple of days, um, useful way to think about the region I live in in terms of its response to things that the rest of the country is going through is Texas for um, by design sometimes and sometimes um, by somewhat ineptitude is about a week behind the rest of the country. <laughs> and the, the valley is typically about a week behind Texas. So that kind of lets you know where we're at in terms of a preparation and response. Um, we're f- for a, for a region with half a million people. We're fairly rural, or at least um, very very low suburban and pretty spread out. So it hasn't quite hit. I don't think in terms of the panic. Um, there's only been a very couple of you in reports of people even being tested at the local hospitals. But for the most part, um, you know, it's a part of the world that's used to being overlooked in terms of. Uh, global and and national conversations. And so they're kind of adjusting themselves accordingly, knowing that we're thinking that we'll be among the last in the state to get any attention if we do. So there's, I mean, there's some local politics and state politics, things at play here that are impacting it, but the people themselves are generally used to working through things. Let's put it that way. And you, uh, you gave up the, the uh, ghost when you said part you're you're clearly not from Texas. Do you think of yourself <laughs> still as a a Massachusettsian? The correct word is Massachusetts. 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 Yeah. Um, I don't. I don't think anyone from Massachusetts does. So I'll defer to that. Um, but I mean, I've lived in Texas as long as I've lived anywhere in my entire adult life. So, and I'm planning on staying for a while. So that answers the question. But- so, but what you were saying earlier is that social dis- distancing is kind of a feature mm-hmm. of the the terrain versus a something that's new. You can go a while without, you know, being in an area that's densely packed. Yeah, there's there's no there's very limited public transportation here. Um, people travel by car almost everywhere they go by out of necessity. Um, people are used to doing things at home. I would say and around the home. Um, the, the university that I work at is one of the main areas where people travel across the Valley and interact. And that's moved completely online in almost every single operation. Um, as, as a lot of other, um, you know, this with across the state restaurants are doing things other states had already done you know, takeout only, um, call in orders, those types of things. Um, but yeah, there's, so, but, but in the micro level, you know, you, you know, there's people waiting outside in line for Walmart and like they're queued up, not necessarily socially distancing, right? right. but on a, on a sort of macro scale for the region there, the region's already pretty adept to do that. I think. Yeah. I, I think that what I'm observing from reading way too much online and, and kind of thinking about this 24 seven is people are, are not 
looking at social distancing as a all-encompassing policy. It's more, I am doing things that are necessary and not appreciating that that still requires you to keep distance. They're more like social distancing means don't go to, to parties, don't go to the bars. And um, so Jeff, you are um, in Virginia, but you live close by to me in Brooklyn and I'll, I'll do 60 seconds on the view from my window from Brooklyn, but you're in as diametrically opposed a situation right now than you would be if you were in Brooklyn. So what's the view like from your window? Uh, it's quite nice. I'm actually quite guilty to say it's, um, <laughs> I'm in Lexington, which is, you know, sort of North central Virginia, sort of pretty close to the West Virginia border. I'm currently, uh, at my in-laws house, which is pretty remote. Uh, I have a view of the Blue Ridge mountains and basically, um, it's woods all around. So, um, we'll see what kind of person I come down the hill as <laughs> as long as it takes to stay up here. But, uh, I'm very aware that it's, it's a pretty, um, cushy place to be writing this out. Well, if you haven't learned how to can peach it, peaches by the end of this, then I think you've spent your time in vain. Uh, my wife planted many new things this morning uh, that I hope that we do not see to fruition <laughs> or at least <laughs> not on this trip. So uh, and I'm in, in Brooklyn in Williamsburg and I would say outside resembles the uh, choose your fighter scene of Mortal Kombat. And by that, I mean that there are different people in different forms of, I'd say, uh, protection. So there's obviously masks. There are people with bandanas. There are people almost with hazmat suits. And uh, there's me who has none of these things and tries to keep my by distance. New York is going to have exponential cases and we don't know where and we don't know when but i'd say in general um people are starting to get the message and there seems to be a much greater adherence to the request and the instructions from the government and it's kind of weird to see cuomo getting uh a lot of kudos because i think in general people don't like him that much so We'll see him run for president in four years, I'm, I'm sure. Jeff, your profession is interesting in that it's, um, you just came off a, a very successful uh, live show that you, you planned. And my first question to you is, you know, it was kind of right. I forget where in the, um, in the chronology, if we were already assuming that coronavirus would be coming to New York. Uh, but was there any inklings of, of what was going to come when you were finalizing that? And what is your overall prognosis for how long social distancing and, and whatever may come is going to impact live music. Well, let me take those in turn. I mean, for the first part, I mean, I was planning the show, which uh, for, for folks who may be listening, it's at an art space called the Knockdown Center in Queens. It's a fairly big space. Um, you can set it up a bunch of different ways. We had almost 2000 people, in the room that night it was a sold out show um on and that was saturday february the 29th which i mean what was that three weeks ago today does that sound right to everybody yeah. um, <laughs> it doesn't but it's probably true three weeks ago so i had been planning that since october um and i have to say i mean ugh, coronavirus did not factor into our planning in any way which i mean i guess now perhaps that's 
I don't know. Like, I, I don't, I, there's no way for me to know if we were irresponsible, sort of like somebody telling us that there was a, an outbreak involved to like any individual thing. Um, but it certainly wasn't anything that we were thinking about. Um, I don't think it really got real to events people in New York until um, probably until cases started really ballooning in um, Europe. Because at the point that you're seeing, you know, soccer matches and empty stadiums, by the time you're hearing about um, gatherings over a certain amount being banned, then I think the writing started to be on the wall that this was going to be a huge, huge problem. Um, Because, you know, as soon as a government body says nobody can, you know, under anything under 5,000 is okay, but over is bad or anything over 1,000 is bad. I mean, you start doing the mental calculation with your venue capacity and it's just, it became clear really quickly that we weren't, nobody was going to be spared by how big your room was. Hmm. Um, So short term, I guess is the next part. Um, It's, a huge problem and I don't know I don't think anybody knows um, whether this is a problem where it's like okay people who are willing to take the hit just take the hit and then they're prepared to come back or if it's going to be a situation where it's like hey haha like live events are back, but now it's only golden boys. <laughs> like is the one right. able to do it. Hmm. Um, I also don't know if somebody like golden voice who, you know, we assume has a large bank of resources. I mean, there's no world in which they plan for a situation where every one of hundreds of their shows was, were going to be canceled or postponed all at once. Like, I wouldn't be so certain that we should assume that those huge entities are going to be okay. So right. um, I think, you know, everybody kind of, I think is in a, a wait and see place, which is really tenuous just for some numbers in New York city um, knockdown center um, in terms of, you know, most of the people are gig workers, part-time workers, but that encompasses everything from, box office to security to people who bartenders people who work the merch table people who um are the sound guys people who you know there's a whole there's a whole range there's very few full-time workers but there's a whole range of um gig workers basically and the number in an informational email from like the director of the venue the other day like the number he threw out, which actually surprised even me, I'm, I'm fairly new to the to the venue, was um, that Knockdown touches 180 distinct workers. So, wow. um, and obviously not usually at once, but that's the that's the number I know from um, social media, a place like Elsewhere, which is out in Brooklyn, which is a big size club. Um, that incorporates like three different venues have 80 workers that are suddenly um, furloughed. So without ticket sales and without the bar, which is the big driver of, of um, income for, for any venue, there's no way to cover these, these workers while the, while the venue isn't operating. That's just not how venues work. Um, Which is to say nothing of the touring musicians. I know that that's like, you know, obviously that's a huge problem too, because that's not typically something that our society (laughs) supports on a, on a, on a higher level. So the long, the short of it in the short term is disastrous. Hmm. Um, And I think the only solution is hoping that what's provided to the individual worker is enough to keep people on their feet until these venues can reopen because um, I just, if history is any guide and certainly under the Trump administration, I would not count on any special dispensation for arts and, you know, the art community in America. It's just not something that people like that prize to be frank. Um, right. but when you look at it, um, 
you know, the mayor's office of entertainment put out a big study in 2016. That was pretty comprehensive. And the numbers there, when you think about it, not as do we value art, but just as a driver of economic impact is incredible. Like, uh, the, the city in 2016, according to this report, got close to 700 million in tax revenue off the nightlife industry. And I mean, that's a real, real number. So if that is the money that we as an industry are driving into the city's coffers, then you you got to think that they got to I mean, they don't have to do anything, but you would. It's in their interest that this industry just doesn't like blink out like a Christmas light. Um, but that's right. so that's for the city. But then you look at like, you know, what? So the city, there are five sectors that the city considers nightlife, and that's food service, bars, arts, venues, and sports, which, you know, that's a really broad. So that's, um, that's almost 200,000 jobs in the city. That's over six billion in wages. Uh, that's nineteen billion in economic output in a year. I mean, these numbers are enormous. So, I mean, which is just to say, to take a breath, that like beyond some, Maybe. you know, arts and humanities wishful thinking that uh, that this that art and music is something that the the government should protect it's a huge sector of the the economy that i think besides just like the richness of the human spirit or whatever <laughs> whatever like we might want to attach to it like it's a big chunk of the city's economy obviously uh, arts has been supported by patronage but it doesn't seem like unless i'm missing something live music especially live pop slash rock slash electronic music is something that people with money tend to to support but that has to be one of the hopes coming out of this that you know the i mean as you said we're probably lucky in new york to live in a a area of the country where the the um value of arts is is perhaps supported or understood at a level that it should be, but um, it's probably going to take some some real investment from hopefully musicians that have, through their stature of life, through their success, come to a place where they can support. But there's probably also, even if that does happen, probably not enough money to go around to, to support everything. Or have you started thinking I mean, about what on the back end needs the scale, to happen. The scale of it is the problem, I think, because I mean, most musicians don't make that much of a living anyway. Um, so right. everybody who is making good music out in the world, you know, we're all indie rock fellows here, historically. <laughs> um, like, I, I don't know, this. It, the scale seems too big to really take care of everybody, quote unquote. Mm. I mean, we're seeing you know, a lot of outpouring of support and there's really good micro initiatives like Bandcamp, which is a great uh, platform for indie music just on Friday did a, you know, sort of a, a stunt a gimmick that seemed really successful where they waived their um, internal commissions on hosting fees. So all money went directly to the artists and they directed everybody to like, Hey, today's the day, like go there and, put an outpouring of support directly to these artists and by all accounts that was a pretty successful initiative so things like that are possible but it's small potatoes versus like call me when spotify moves the decimal point on their stream yeah. like like that's if they don't do something like that um they can go fuck themselves frankly <laughs> it brings it home and i know you're gonna say of course but I just came across a tweet around the Bandcamp, um, you know, news and, and people going out of their way to support it, where Nico Case was saying that she's kind of brokish right now. And you just take for granted that, you know, this woman has is part of the, by all intents and purposes, successful 
uh, band, you know, has been a successful artist, but there's just, there's a, a threshold, a great filter that few artists get to where, you know, celebrity or not even celebrity, just popularity is not translating into a safety nest for a lot of people that you gunned ahead, you would say have probably made good money over the course. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the live side. Like I, you know, I, the numbers aren't absurd or anything, but I'm sure if Nico case was mounting like off of a new record, like a 25 city tour, like even those numbers on an individual show wouldn't, you know, probably from my own experience, wouldn't like blow you away exactly. But when you put 25 of them in a row, like that's a pretty good year. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, yeah. that's, that has been the way that musicians have been able to support themselves in the sort of post um, physical media economy. Um, but as we're seeing right now, it doesn't take that much to completely <laughs> make that go away. So, I mean, I think we have to move towards a future where, companies and again like spotify are forced basically to change their algorithm so that um the people who actually do the work of providing their content are better compensated and like they don't have lavish manhattan offices with foosball tables and like amazing snacks you know what i mean it's like there's something wrong when um the delivery system is compensated on a higher level than the actual creative product. Right. So uh, keeping it in art and throwing it to, to Randy, um, I, I was just thinking about, you know, the art that's going to come from uh, the era of quarantines. And certainly we are somewhat guilty um, doing a new podcast uh, in this time, but I, I was reminded of a article that Amanda Palmer of the Dresden Dolls uh, wrote right after Trump got elected, saying that it was going to be a glorious age of punk rock. Uh, which obviously, you know, there's good music happening all the time. There's good punk rock rock happening all the time, but it was you know, somewhat the the narrow-mindedness of the artist to just assume something that, um, as advertised, would be terrible for the country, would give artists a, a unlimited font of inspiration. Um, so what, it, what are your thoughts of what we're going to see at the tail end of this whenever it, it ends on, uh, on art that was created during this time? Well, I think um, this stems directly from what what Jeff was just talking about in that for a number of people who will be impacted by by the pandemic, by whatever the fall ends up being. And I think we're we're just going to make fools of ourselves if we try to predict exactly how it's going to play out at this point. But it's stopping a lot of people. I was just saying just (laughs) within this conversation, maybe. Yeah. What's the but the people whose, whose livelihoods depend on just sort of a sense of normalcy of this going through. And so Palmer got, I mean, I remember remember when that article or when that, that piece of hers was, was first, was first published. And she got quite a bit of pushback. If I recall correctly from, let's say uh, non-hegemonically mainstream communities, um, uh, queer Mm -hmm. punk artists, um, multilingual musicians, um, people from different border regions within and, and, and across different the country would say like, wait a minute, we've been having that sort of exigency for our work forever. The fact that all of a sudden, you know, upper middle-class nominally progressive white people are starting to feel the pinch doesn't mean this is the starting point for when music's going to get interesting. And it kind of, I mean, directly the critiques that were levied at Palmer at that point were that she's just immediately, you know, underselling the work that people have been doing in those marginalized communities for years leading up to it. And so I, you know, if, 
it, this is the only prediction I'm going to make, but whatever gets comes out of this, like it will get picked up by, you know, whether it's labels or media conglomerates or critics as being a direct res positive response to the, the pandemic. And the ones who get the most credit for it will be from those same broadly defined demographic groups that already get the credit for doing things. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a, that's a great point. Um, and, you know, I think Palmer yeah. aside, because she, anything she says will, will um, lend itself to people assuming she's tone deaf. I think there's a lot of validity in what you just said and probably predicting out that there's probably going to be a lot of bad, bad um, art that comes out of this. That's going to be elevated from the middle class that are, you know, no, the fact that anyone's being impacted is bad. Um, but, you know, again, as you said, this is, it's going to be art from people that are feeling a pinch right. recent uh, that are, speaking to an experience that a lot of people um, below the poverty line have been feeling for a really long well, time. And think about it too, because it's like uh, the easiest cliche right now is like, Oh man, like people are going to have so much time, like so much time to make art. And it's like a grocery clerk doesn't have time to make art. Like, uh, you know, yeah. it's just, it's, I mean, that very well might be true. And I think the, the sense of isolation, I mean, I would expect critics to latch on to like things that, you know, were kind of dystopian or were kind of like themes of isolation stuff that's already prized as difficult art. This is a real easy peg to hang on that, but I don't know. Um, you know, I think it's too early. I think it's too early to know what, how this morphs our society and how, what even the means of delivering this stuff is going to be like, are, are we going to be reacting in real time to stuff that people are putting out themselves right now? Right. Like, do we have to wait a year for the publicity and marketing machine of a major label to digest it and put it back out in the world? And what's the world going to look like then? I like, I, you would hope that anything that like binds people together in any kind of difficulty should be the fuel of good art, but we might be looking at like, a level of sort of precarity that makes focusing on making anything difficult. It's sort of a cog world of academia that's happening is, you know, this happens every summer too. You know, you give a bunch of, of academics who are working all year with their teaching, focusing mainly on their teaching service work and tell them they have three months off. And the first thing everyone says, is like, I'm going to get so much writing done. It's like, okay, well that, that's a great initiative. Um, but as you mentioned, giving sort of the, so the contentious nature of, of how everything else is working on right now. Um, like how do you actually do that as a material practice when everything else around you is unstable? The, like, I'll admit like my, you know, my writing habits have, have gone pretty much downhill since the, the, the hard, not even the hard quarantine, but the efforts for it have come into place. Although, you know, looking long-term playing and saying, these are the things I want to try to accomplish during this time, because I think they're still important. If they were important to me before, I'm hoping they're still important to me now. And then trying to find time to accomplish those things going through. Um, but the idea of, I want to respond to your point, Jeff, about we're going to get to a point where we're going to look back and filter everything that happened during this time period, specifically through the pandemic again, as an explicit response to that. And that seems to be a, but that looks to be like, like I get, how would I word this? It looks to be sort of a prescient way of thinking about how we're going to go through this in that for one, it's, it's certainly impacting. It's there, you know, it's, it's, it's ambient, no matter what we're working on, you know, we're explicitly talking about it right now, but this were a podcast about, you know, tabletop games like it would still be right. hanging on in the background behind us. <laughs> and in, in some cases it'll make more right. sense than others. Um, like whenever the next Olympics or world cup comes out, like right now there's people working at NBC who are writing the copy about that first Olympic athlete who tested positive for COVID-19 and then wins a medal. 
We don't know who it's going to be. They're just going to fill in the name of the country and then do some, you know, some (laughs) B-roll when they do the the puff piece on it, but they're already planning it. And well, go ahead. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no. I mean, that's a good point. I mean, the thing that I'm struck by in thinking about it's so soon into this, that the thing that's striking me right now in the moment that it's unfolding is how the, the definitional art, right this second of the moment seems to be art from the past that we're now retrofitting to our current moment as prescient. Mm. You know what I mean? Like all, like how many blog posts and podcasts have you heard about Soderbergh's contagion? Like how many articles have you read about um, the recent novel, very good recent novel uh, severance by the author Ling Ma, which sort of seems to, you know, is centered around, a virus that starts in China and talks about sort of like the, you know, work situations under that. And like, you know, it, it is prescient for the moment, but I mean, not if this didn't happen, it wouldn't have been. And like, you know, I mean, I leaving the city, like I've never once in my life driven through the Holland tunnel without thinking about the scene in the stand where the guy <laughs> crawls yeah. along the wall of the Holland tunnel with like cars full of like stalled, you know fleeing plague victims but like once again (laughs) like lo and behold like i drove through the holland tunnel leaving like you know the the impending pandemic and i thought about old art i didn't think about Hmm. oh boy in the future this is um this is what's going to happen because i think your mind is so unprepared to deal with something like this that you you know, a touchstone from your own life doesn't fit. Like you have to, you have to reach out for um, something that you're at least familiar with on some level, because then at least you can kind of understand it. I mean, that's my working theory anyway. The, The thing that separates this moment from previous moments is everyone's going to have their gradients. Um, Some people are going to get really sick. Some people are going to know people who die. Some people are going to get coronavirus and, and never feel sick for a day and heal. But it is, I'm trying to think of an event that literally everyone is going through. And so what is going to, that should stop a majority of people from thinking that they have a unique point of view that needs to be put into art. <laughs> Good luck on that one. <laughs> Although I suspect, yeah, that's not going to be the case. But just think that people have historically tried to glom on, tried to tell a story, feel a part of, of something that's big. Uh, but everyone is going to, everyone can make a claim to have some coronavirus story and to, go back to Randy's point that there's probably going to be really cogent, important work from not your, you know, your average six figure uh, advanced book or, or authors that will again be buried because people don't look for it or, you know, they don't have the mechanisms to tell their story. So history will undoubtedly repeat itself and mediocre stories will, will um, rise to the top that don't come close to telling the true tale of people. Yeah, should the know. recent novel in the sort of fallout from it build as a narrative of a woman from Mexico and their child sort of escaping the violence there and coming to the United States. Um, but it was written by someone who didn't identify as certainly not as as Mexican or Mexican American and the book itself trades in, in sort of stereotypes of a white lens looking at the experience of migrant workers or migrants for that matter. And the part of the, the response to that wasn't just that the book was, wasn't very good according to the people, the epistemic courts of that particular genre, but that the mixture of, it getting the Oprah's book club tag and the, and the lucrative advance that it, the author received in that, you know, authors of color who are writing from their own experience and who are more ingrained within those lived material realities aren't getting, aren't being provided those opportunities. 
And so again, this is just, this isn't just a different point than the one you're making, Keith, just a, a different degree to that idea. Something I'd, I'd be interested to hear you guys think about as well is yeah. the art where we're sort of splitting hairs here a little bit maybe, but the idea of like the artists, the people creating the work. And I think Jeff made really good points about, about services like Spotify, for instance, and how they would um, compensate the creators of work. Um, I think also, or potentially, and this is me maybe just being optimistic, but maybe even appreciation for like artisan type of work. You know, there's people in our communities who aren't necessarily doing, creating a new thing in response to something to whether it's, you know, a catastrophic event or, or a positive one, but the people who are recreating things at incredibly high level over and over and over again, the, 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 you know, the food makers in your communities, the people who do, you know, like the day labor work, this thinking that terms of being able to perform at a high level and reproduce a high quality product over and over and over and over again and how much we're reliant on those types of people within our communities as well. And sort of valuing that as a form of labor um, and as a, as a habitual practice that they're doing professionally, but also we can possibly do in our own lives. I think that might be something that for, at least for me is always a framework that I'm trying to maintain as I think about the work that people around us are doing too. Yeah, that's a great point. And you know, as as Jeff said earlier, even the the most uh, assumed to be in good standing large corporations that are, you know, for decades have been the the main driving force for the monetization of art. Like they are not guaranteed to survive. So, you know, there could from this bloom a a new more for lack of a better term, DIY or, or um, uh, dis, disintermediated uh, economy for, for artists that might be, you know, better for the individual I mean, artists. <laughs> that would be nice. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll end this segment on a positive uh, uh proposition which has a 0.02% chance of happening. Uh, but thank you, Randall and Jeff. Uh, stay safe and hopefully yep, too, we'll man. talk again Take soon. And now, Sebastian Hernandez and Yona Korngold. So uh, that was just Randall and Jeff. I have two new guests. Technically, I have one right now, but the second should be joining shortly. Yona Korngold, who is in the Philadelphia area. Yona, tell me what the view is like from your window. Ah, uh, well, you're asking that question while I'm in the basement, but I, <laughs> I am now looking out the window. Uh, it's actually a very pleasant, sunny day. Uh, I live on a front street where in Philadelphia has um, access to the river, to the Delaware River, so lots of runners, dog walkers. So it's seemingly like um like any other day except it's not like any other day yeah I, have you noticed the are there more runners less runners yeah i was actually noticing uh this week definitely a lot more people are taking up running and realizing a couple blocks in that they don't like running and starting to walk <laughs> so there's a lot of that which i actually did uh a little earlier where i started running and realized i do not like running I'm, I'm gearing up towards doing that. A friend who is very into fitness that keeps sending me free workouts that I I wish he wouldn't because I have mentally prepped for uh, pursuing a real exercise regimen is just an acknowledgement that uh, this is going to go on for a long time and and you will you will gain fifty pounds if you don't start taking that taking exercise seriously. So once, once I give into a real exercise regimen, that's when I've acknowledged that this is going to go on for far longer than anticipated. Uh, so, so Seb, you're in Colorado, um, which 
I feel has been worrying two of the states that have had the most news around coronavirus. So what's, what's happening in your um, area of the country? Yeah, so I'm in Denver and uh, the spikes here started in, in the ski resorts, really. Um, Aspen Vale, uh, Summit County, um, travelers from around the world. And <laughs> I'm reading now that in Mexico, there's a bunch of people that were in Vail that were all quarantined. So, you know, Colorado's making the news in Mexico as a source for them. It's, this whole thing's a hot mess, right? <laughs> um, right. And in, in Denver proper, um, we're not in lockdown. Um, everything's closed, takeout, you know, for restaurants, bars are closed. So they're all adapting to, to that reality. Uh, schools are closed, of course. And I'd say generally people are following the guidelines. Um, it snowed here two days ago. So, so that's probably helpful, to be honest. Um, mm-hmm. But prior to that, you know, I, I ride my bike and I rode my bike for a good while the other day. And the parks are pretty packed, um, w- which I think is probably universal. Um, and the only time I cringe is when I see kids at the playground. But besides that, you know, I think people are doing the right thing generally. Yeah. Um, so we, we all have children in, uh, at various degrees of their life progression. Um, what are, how are you guys uh, coping with, you know, keeping them interested? Are you doing play dates are you you know what is lifetime in the parental lifetime in the era of uh, pandemic for you guys yeah I was actually I have a three-year-old so I was just actually wondering at what point do children start getting bored or understanding boredom (laughs) or or that that hey that's weird we haven't left the house in a while like like when does that start (laughs) dawning on children like what age Right. Um, I, I think that it's probably, it, it happens much sooner than they will be able to verbalize. Um, I, you know, I have read an inordinate amount of people's opinions of what you need to do uh, with your children. And I definitely lean towards the, you cannot replace your teacher. Don't try, just survive this and, you know, not worry too much about their, you know, the, it determining the fate of their, their, their lives because who even knows what, what life is going to look like at the, the tail end of this. Yeah, I, I've been following that philosophy as well. Um, I, I mean, it's, it's probably the most practical way to look at it. Um, and, and a way to not make yourself too crazy. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I think there's, there's this tendency, I, I can speak for myself. You, on one hand, you say, oh, let, let me organize and over-organize. And, and now you're beating yourself up because those things aren't being done. So, so that's not helpful, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, so f- for me, my kids are a little older, seven and nine. Um, so I could tell you they know what boredom is. <laughs> my son tells me often, I'm bored. <laughs> um, but we, you know, they also know what's going on is the other thing. Um, they understand there's this virus and there's people getting sick and this is what we have to do. Um, and one thing that's been very helpful, very helpful is they've been FaceTiming with their friends. Um, yeah. And it's just nice to hear them laugh and do whatever they do amongst each other because it's, it's very normal, you know? Um, yeah. I, so. I think, uh, I don't know how you feel, Yona, but I feel... Um, my son is approaching five. If he were about eight months older, there would be a much higher degree of self-sufficiency. You know, there would be things that he currently can't really do now or don't hold his attention that could hold his attention for a while. And so my greatest coping mechanism is um, I figured out how uh, in um rocket league which is a for those of you who don't know a, 
a video game where you are inexplicably a car that is playing soccer, um, where I have uh, made it so he thinks he's controlling the car that I'm controlling. And so, (laughs) because otherwise it would just led to frustration. And now he takes time to taunt me uh, for the car that he's actually controlling, asking why I'm not moving. <laughs> but it buys me a good hour. Um, and you get to more. play the video game yourself. And <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Which is not an insignificant <laughs> thing. Um, so where you guys have signed up or I've signed you up to talk a bit about the, the politics or the societal um, it seems like it's a really bad time to be a politician and to do something egregiously wrong because no one is doing anything other than paying attention and getting madder and madder at elected officials. And so when we're recording this, the topic of conversation is whether or not um, a number of Republican senators received a class a, a briefing about the the true nature of the pandemic and then subsequently sold their stocks um seems like the even if we get down a path where um it's determined to not be illegal to not be unethical it's not good optics and it, it seems like there is going to I, my the question I throw out to you guys is: there are going to be a lot of bad actors or indifferent actors during this time. Again, whenever this ends, if it ever ends, are we going to be able to remember everyone, or are people just playing the game that, as long as they're not the worst actor, no one will remember? Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think there's a that, difference yeah. between being a bad actor and like doing something with bad optics, but doing something with bad optics while saying something completely different publicly, that's where the public has, uh, that, that was, that's a sure way to get everyone to hate you very fast. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. I think there's a, obviously, yeah. Like just the idea of getting a briefing and then, slowly being huh maybe i should um dump that stock like like i I get how the mind goes there but there's gotta be some filter some something in the brain that says well maybe that's not a good right idea at this exact moment at this exact second like then that that, that's what fascinates me is that how people think that not that they could get away with something but like yeah like that this will not blow up into a huge deal when, <laughs> when pulling that trigger for a hundred thousand dollars of selling stock. Right. I mean, the, the great thing is, uh, and, and I have to pause for a second because I do wonder if Burr and Barr are going to get merged into one person. Um, <laughs> but so Senator Burr uh, voted against the stonk, uh, Stocks Act, which I guess made uh, made it made disclosure much more prominent, or made disco- disclosure of stock sales uh, necessary. And to be on the right, it's almost like he should have said, "Like, oops, I tried." But now that I'm on the record having voted against this, like, I probably shouldn't sell anything after I've learned about this pandemic, especially, I mean, I just don't buy the argument that like, you know, they, it's tough for them that they learn something that they know that in weeks that their net worth is going to drop dramatically. Like, I mean, that happens every day that someone is probably exposed to, um, information that they can't use and you know maybe you're better off not knowing that but you know it uh but i'm not like there's no argument for why they could sell those things said what are your thoughts 
so I, I looked at this earlier and, and I, I'm prepared here with some, with some numbers, guys. Facts. Excellent. So, so hold, hold on tight, guys. If we've learned anything as of late, when you have facts, you're going to win. So <laughs> here we go. So here's a timeline. So Richard Burr, Senator of uh, North Carolina, I want to say. Yeah. He is Senate Intelligence Chairman. And here's, I think, the timeline that matters. So on the 7th of February, he wrote an op-ed when at the time we had about a dozen confirmed cases and life was, I would say, pretty normal for, for the Americans. That was a, a month ago-ish. And I think here, here's the big quote I pulled out of that op-ed. <clears throat> quote, thankfully, the United States today is better prepared than ever than ever before to face emerging public health threats like the coronavirus, in large part due to the work of the Senate Health Committee, Congress, and the Trump administration, end quote. That, you know, will we remember, Keith, like you asked? Who knows? Mm-hmm. But that's pretty, that's pretty damning, I think, yeah. even, even today. It feels like <laughs> and, he should uh, say, like, hey, no one knows exactly what's happening. Uh, given this uncertainty, I'm going to going to sell my stocks i recommend you do what's best for you but they couldn't do that because that would trigger a run on the market and and yeah and what you're alluding to happened a week later that was on the the op-ed was two set on uh, february 7th on february 13th he sold uh 1.7 million dollars worth of stock and what i was interested in you know what what did he avoid losing In, in other words with what we know has happened with the market and, and the answer has approximately 40% of losses that he's avoided. Well, so good, good job. Good job. Bert. Great job. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, if you, if you, if you give it the benefit of the doubt, which was, is something special, but if you do that, you think this guy is just lucky. He just, he's just lucky, right? That has right. nothing to do with what he may be privy to knowing. And, you know, I guess you'd have to believe that and, and, and also give the benefit of the doubt that as a senator, the man of good, good intentions, and there's no reason to doubt any of this. So I, I suppose those people exist, guys. I suppose they exist. Um, and, and I've been called a cynic before. <laughs> no. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I don't buy it. I think it's a load of horseshit. Yeah. And, and the third piece of this is, is the Trump, um, or excuse me, yeah, on February 26th, which would be two weeks from the stock sale. This was a memorable day. Trump was on camera saying, in 15 days, this will disappear. Uh, you know, paraphrasing, but that's basically what he said. The same day, Burr is when Burr was speaking to his donors, I think, and privately basically, you know, saying, this is going to shut down the country. This is bad. And essentially the opposite of what Trump was saying. Right. It does seem having the person in charge of everything who's just obsessed with the fluctuating price of a made-up concept called the stock market is is suboptimal as we are facing a global pandemic. Uh, So let's... uh, what what has what is I don't want to say warmed your heart, but what have you noticed happening? Because we all have a lot of time on our hands that has given you hope or made you, you know, uh, a little more confident that we'll come out of this sometime with with some of our uh, some of our lives in you know remaining as they are what I, so I came across uh, and I'm still thinking about it. uh, Just a, a tweet uh, from the New York city health department about sex and the coronavirus. And I think it's just because there have been decades upon decades of um, religious intrusion uh, or religious influence on public safety that I read this, you know, this guidance uh, and was thought it was bold (laughs) for a health department to say, look, if, 
you want to have sex, the safest sex to have is with yourself. So that alone is just, you know, that, yes, that makes sense. But I'm just, I, I'm, I'm worried that, you know, that Tipper Gore and, um, you know, uh, Barbara Bush and, and Ronald Reagan are going to, you know, come out of nowhere and say, we can't be talking about sex to people, you know, kids could be reading this. Um, but it was just, I don't know. I'm hoping that a positive takeaway from this is, you know, the deifying of the scientists, of the medical professionals, um, you know, the calls to making grocery worker, like anyone who is being forced to uh, work in conditions that are frankly unsafe. Like there's no way around it. It is unsafe to have to go into a public space, handle money, get close to people. Um, and, you know, I, I am guilty the last time I went to the grocery, I didn't find some way to like, you know, go beyond actually tip, even if there isn't like a little tip thing, say thank you. Um, but it seems like there's a lot of, there's a lot of groundswell for treating people that have really difficult jobs or, or jobs that require them to show up whether they're sick or the rest of the world is sick around them to give them a living wage, to give them benefits, to give them a better life. Um, so that's something I'm holding on to is as, you know, again, worrying that we're going to come out of this so relieved to be in back to quote unquote normalcy. I worry we'll forget these lessons, but that's one that I intend to keep. What about you guys? Um, yeah, I'll go for it. I think I agree with that. I, I, this, this, you know, this puts in relief the a lot of working class people that I mean, let, let's be honest, guys, we live pretty privileged lives. And, yes. you know, I, I don't I don't know if any of us have ever, you know, post high school, post college entertained a job being a dishwasher or a cleaner and, and not to diminish that, you know, th there's a lot of those folks are the ones obviously they can't work from home. I mean, right. If they work at a restaurant, they're not working. But the, the grocery store is like the front front line right now. I mean, <laughs> Yona and I were talking earlier. It's like, it feels like you're going into the trenches and avoiding sniper fire by handing a debit card to someone. Right. And, and, you're, and you're those guys are there all day. Turning, and that person remains there and is interacting with the 600 facsimiles of you that is doing the same thing. It's To me, it sounds like a nightmare. And I, that's absolutely right. That's exactly right. And the same with the healthcare workers. Um, you know, the same with really anyone who's out there, the garbage man, you know, garbage, the sanitation workers, they're, they're not going, they're not going off. Um, so it's like hats off to those folks, right? And, you know, some good things you're seeing, you see pay getting raised and, and some things and, and there's some mass hiring going on as kind of the economy is displaced from one set to another. And, uh, you know, those people are going to keep working. Your Amazon guys are going to keep working. And, uh, you know, I'm speaking for myself. <laughs> I go and sanitize the, the mailbox every time I go take the mail out. Um, so to see the other side of that or imagine the other side of that, it's, it's, it takes a lot of imagination at the, in this time right now. Yeah. Yona, what about you? Uh, yeah, well, I, my last trip to uh, the grocery store, uh, I usually, I used to go to the grocery store once a day, but now I'm still, even during this, like maybe every other day. Um, but my last trip, uh, there was a guy who, right when I, I went to go frantically wipe down my basket, and he sort of like waved at me and he says, hey, bro, I already, got, I already did that all. I did that for everyone. And I was, just, uh, I was like, wow, that was just what it's going to take to get through this is people looking out just for that fact of someone wiping down a 
10 different baskets for everyone there may have uh, helped, helped uh, get through that day, helped, helped uh, stop some of the spread. So like, just like, like uh, moments like that, I think where people are just going out of their way to do simple things to keep people in mind are pretty, pretty special. Yeah. I, I mean, as Seb said earlier, I too am a cynic and I oftentimes openly question when, you know, when there's people on Twitter saying, you know, <laughs> anytime that someone's like, all right, I'm going to go into a thread, my, <laughs> my, um, my bullshit meter is, is raised. Uh, but one of the things I've seen that is just really hit me is the people that, uh, you know, the, the healthcare professionals that are sharing, uh, images from those kids in, in Florida that are, you know, going to the beach or just any, any situation, um, where people, who by now absolutely know better and have many different means to not do what they're doing to have the healthcare professionals say like, this is just demoralizing me that I'm putting myself in harm's you know way and believing that we can tackle this. If people just take the basic step of not congregating. And then I see like, this is a manifestation of, all of the work I'm trying to do um, being eliminated and just ensuring that I'm going to have to do more of this incredibly difficult taxing work for that much longer because people are being selfish. Like that's really hit me. And I, you know, I, I can never imagine what they're going through, but I feel like it, it brings me despair as well. And, and, I think the more that I, I definitely encourage those healthcare professionals to use social media to say, to share those images and say, you're just making my job that much harder. Um, I, you know, I a hundred percent support that. And I too despair when I see that. And like, I don't want to, you know, I, I don't want to, no one wants to be a scold, but it's really hard to, forgive what people are doing right now when all they need to do is just chill out for a bit. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. Like where you're witnessing people in that early scenes from jaws who are still playing on the beach, splashing the water. <laughs> and, and you're always like, who are these people? There's a shark in the water. But like we're living through that. Like it's, it's amazing. Yeah. Th 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 there's a wild part of this too is, you know, like the way this is all playing out, like to use the movie metaphor, the movie started in China, right? Yeah. And we were watching it and, and it was this thing that was over there. And I'm sure we were, I know, you know, I, I, at some point we're like, man, that would be crazy to stay indoors with your kids and school closing. Crazy shit. I hope that never happens here. <laughs> and then it's just out of sight, out of mind, right? And then suddenly Italy, that, that probably became... I mean, I grew up in an Italian neighborhood that probably became very real to people because that's a place you can, you know, people have been to Italy. It's, it's a place that, you know, is a modern country. Right. And, you know, I've heard often, you know, out there two weeks ahead of us. Now you're seeing that same varying timeline in, in the States. New York is, you know, way on the edge of this movie and other States aren't. And, like collectively humanity is going through this. We're relearning how to, how to interact. And I mean, typically I, I don't have high hopes on, you know, proactiveness on, as a human, as a human trait. It's not a dominant human trait at least. And we're, we're experimenting with that in real time with every human being on the whole planet. And so, I mean, Yes, those spring breakers need to be punched in the face, clearly, right? Like, like a lot. And they're all wasted, clearly. But like, what, what is that about? So <laughs> that kind of stuff is crazy. 
and the, the bad apples are out there, but I, it seems like the shaming is working right. and the moral authority that the health folks are, are putting out there. Like there's a lot of clever ways that I've seen that seems to be getting through to people. Well, I, and, and I hope it's not, you know, a week from now when their parents are getting sick is, is the real thing. You know? Well, I think the the biggest, uh, the biggest complication or the, the, the thing that, became the conventional wisdom that certainly led to more of what we saw in Florida was, um, you know, the labeling this of a old person disease. And, you know, we're seeing young people dying. And I think when that alone, or that is probably the biggest deterrent of young people, you know, they might've just said, well, I'm not going to go see my grandma for a while. I'm not, you know, I might get a little sick. Um, I'm around kids my age. We might get a little sick, so be it. Um, but now that we're, you know, we're seeing and we will continue to see people of a younger age die, that is going to be the the thing that, that snaps, snaps them into reality. Yeah, unfortunately, I think you're right. Um, and uh, it, it's just when you observe this and step away from it for a second, it, it's more brain scrambling than, than anything. Right. <laughs> but like that, you can't, like, it seems like you, that can only lead you to complete anxiety and shut down and paralysis or this quick triage of your circumstances to, you know, you, you, it's like the hierarchy of, of things. Like the, the meme of the old meme of, but did you die is, is, has, has fucking taken a dark turn, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and in a way, like, that, that's what my, this might be. Is like, but did you die? Right. And, and I don't mean that in a funny way, but it's like, well, no, because I locked myself in my house and I went out once a week to get groceries. Right. Right. <laughs> I mean, I think that's the, it, it's been said many times over that we'll never know if the drastic measures we took like, the, it, you know, the parallel to it's hard to disprove a negative, we're not going to know if we were over aggressive in what we needed to do. But it, it seems pretty likely that we didn't do enough and we didn't do it quick enough. And now we're, we're you know, it's, it's, it's like the, the train has left the station and, and we're just witnesses to whatever is going to happen. Uh, which is, you know, not a, not a, a good way to, to feel or, but there's no, I mean, there's nothing else to do now except just listen to what is deemed to be the good information, which is from the doctors and scientists, ignore the rest. I think we know where that's coming from and hold on. And that's all we can do. Yeah. Not a lot of, not a great time to make making predictions right now. <laughs> not a great way to end a podcast, but it, it has to it has to end eventually. So, Yona and Sebastian, uh, thank you for chatting with me, and let's do this again soon. Thank you. Stay safe thank out you. there. Thank you for listening to the first episode of Heavy Decibel Operations. The origin of that name I will save for another podcast. Hopefully you found this informative or educational or at the very least a welcome distraction during these trying times. We'll be back with a new episode soon. Have a great day.